0: So, good evening. Am I on? Yeah. So, this evening I'd like to talk about the place of the heart qualities in the practice, and specifically uh, the qualities of loving kindness and compassion this evening the Buddha broadly talked about the development of what he called Brahma-viharas, divine abodes of the heart, qualities of love, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So I'll talk primarily about the quality of metta, which means loving-kindness, or friendliness, deep friendship with life, and also about compassion. And when we do the practice of metta, uh, it's, very, it's very important to sit comfortably. So while you listen to this talk, sit comfortably. Sit, as an, sit so your posture is an expression of loving kindness to your body. But don't lie down. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. <laughs> A couple of hours you can do that. So, one way that the teachings talk about the fullness of this path is they make the analogy to it's like two wings of a bird. We have the wing of wisdom, insight, awareness, and the wing of love, compassion, kindness. And we need both wings to fly, to awaken. If we only have one that's overdeveloped, we don't move forward in the same way. So as, we, as you've noticed, mostly we've been stressing the quality of awareness, presence, mindfulness. And I'll talk about how they, these qualities interweave. There's a beautiful passage, I couldn't find it before the talk this evening, from uh, the sixth and patriarch, Hui Neng, famous uh, Chan master from China. And he talks about mindfulness and awareness and love being the same. And a couple of things I remember from that passage, he says, do not think that awareness and love are separate. Awareness is the essence of love (coughs) and love is the function of awareness. Awareness is the essence of love Love is the function of awareness. I love that idea of love being how we move into the world as the expression, the heart of awareness. When I reflect on the qualities of presence, mindful mindful awareness, I think about the qualities that make up that state of being, the qualities of what? Openness, acceptance, receptivity, Connection, intimacy, receptivity, non-judgment, quality of allowing, of interest, of non-separation with that which we're paying attention to, not having an agenda. Many qualities make up this mindful awareness quality. And I would say all those qualities are also present in the quality of love. They're very similar. We'd say in the quality of love, there's also connection, openness, interest, receptivity, intimacy, non-separation. So when we behold anything with a really fully embodied heartful awareness, we can sense into this sense of non-separation. Joanna Macy puts it this way, wonderful Buddhist teacher and scholar. She says, the Dharma path, strikes me as profoundly erotic. This is a very unusual statement about Buddhist practice, I'll have you know. (laughs) You may not have noticed yet the erotic quality. (laughs) This is the secret teaching. (laughs) She goes on to say, Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever that thing is. Anything when you put your attention on it and it reveals to you, love comes forth. So how would it be to do that in our sitting practice, in our asana practice, in our walking practice, to pay attention with that quality of intimacy and connection, to allow that quality of intimacy to rise for the body, to the breath, to sensations. One of my favorite passages from a poem for Mary Oliver called When Death Comes. She says, when it's all over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. Mm-hmm. When it's over, the second line, she says, um, I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. I want to live as if I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. What would it be like to have an awakeness and a presence that's married to amazement, that that's intimate? And the way I understand it, the longer I've been practicing, the more that I see all the different practices and techniques and methodologies and teachings, they really are all leading to love, to the heart opening, whether it's insight understanding, understanding our interconnectedness, understanding our non-separateness, seeing through our self-centeredness, they all lead to a softening and opening connection to a place where we no longer feel as separate or where we feel no longer separate at all. Nisargadatta, a wonderful teacher from India, put it this way, he said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Wisdom, the insight that we practice, the awakening. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. That's really our life and our practice. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. We see that we are empty, insubstantial, non-definable. Yet love tells me I am everything. I'm connected at one with everything. The Buddha put it this way, he said, awakening is the liberation of the heart, which is love. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama put it this way, as you know this famous phrase, he said, my religion isn't emptiness or being a Buddhist, just my religion is kindness. One of my favorite stories from the poet Hafiz, a Sufi poet and teacher, is a story of when a young man comes to uh, s- uh, seek his guidance about his visions of God and his spiritual experiences he's having in meditation. And so he proceeds to recount his experiences to Hafiz, and Hafiz is, I imagine, sitting there like a stoic Zen master, um, not so impressed with all these great visions that the man's having, and at the end of his uh, this... Uh, the man recounting his story, Hafiz says, well, that's very interesting. How many goats do you have? And the man says, goats? I'm telling you about my visions of God, and you want to know how many goats I've got? And Hafiz says, yeah, how many goats do you have? He knew he was a farmer. He says, well, I have 42. And then Hafiz proceeds to ask him a bunch of other questions. You know. Are your parents still alive? Do you take care of them? Do you take care of your, your, the people who work on your land? Do you feed the birds in winter? And how do you take care of your animals? And so the man ask, answers all these questions. And then Hafiz says, you ask me if your visions of God are true, and I would say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person and every creature that you meet. So the proof is in the pudding in terms of how a practice you know, manifests, expresses itself through contact, through relationship, expression. And it's often this quality of kindness, compassion, open-heartedness that most touches us in teachers. I know that's been my experience. I love studying with teachers who are wise and brilliant and clear and insightful and profound. But often what I'm most moved by is how that's shining through their heart their being. I know there's a story when the Buddha died, and uh, I believe it was Ananda who was, uh, went missing for a while um, and was eventually found and was very distraught. The, Ananda was the, the Buddha's attendant for many decades, and um, he was found to be weeping. Um, and the words that he said, he said of all the things that he could remember about the Buddha, he said, oh, he, the, he who was so kind, he who was so kind. Here we have this man, the Buddha, this brilliant, wise, profound teacher, and yet the person who'd been closest to him for decades, this is the quality that most struck him, he who was so kind. I remember when I was studying with one of my main main teachers, Punjaji, in Lucknow in India in the early 90s, Wonderful Advaita Vedanta teacher, who was also very brilliant and incredibly articulate and profound, um, and very free and expressed that freedom in a playfulness. Um, but what I most, one of the things I most take away is um, one of the qualities, one of the facets of metta is this generosity of heart, this generosity, this willingness to share and give of oneself. And he had this this sort of immense Uh, energy and uh, capacity and patience to be with people. There would be hundreds of people coming to see him every day. There'd be people lining up outside his house for extra time with him. And he just had this unstoppable generosity of heart that was always ready to give and to serve and can see the highest in people. It was such a beautiful uh, gift that I take away from that time. So I'd like to say a little about what this quality of matter is. We've been doing the practice the last few evenings. As I said, it's a quality of friendliness, of friendship, of kindness. Um, I, used, I like to use the word love, even though in our culture, love has got many different meanings and often has been uh, demoted to a kind of sentimental love or a love that's attached, that expects something in return. Like in pop songs, "I love you, if you love me, and I love you more, if you love me back." And that's not quite what matter is. It's also not what uh, when I go to my dry cleaners, they have a sticker on the front of the dry cleaners with a big red heart that says, "We love our customers." <laughs> that's not quite matter in the Buddhist sense. Oh and the, the advertisement I heard on a, actually on my way to going to teach at IMS on the East Coast, and it was just before Valentine's Day. And the ad was, if you really loved your partner, you would give her a gift certificate for cosmetic surgery. I don't know about you, but in my experience, that wouldn't go down that well. So it's not that kind of love. The Buddha had a very high standard for many things, including the quality of metta. He talked about in the Metta Sutta, which is one of the main places where he talked about this quality of loving kindness, he said, we should cherish all living beings with a boundless heart. Just as a mother cherishes her one and only child, so we should love all living beings. It's the quality of love that um, is equal to all, that doesn't discriminate, and also doesn't expect anything in return. It's a complete generosity of heart. There's an analogy of um, metta-like gentle rain, but it rains softly and equally on all. In the bigger picture, Hafiz puts it this way. He says, even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. (laughs) Fortunately for us. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. That's the quality of matter that lights the whole sky in its fullest sense. But matter is also very ordinary. It's very simple, very accessible, something you know and have tasted and have lived with throughout your life. It's a simple feeling of kindness, a simple feeling of care, of connection, of warmth, of friendliness. It's also a sensitivity of heart. It's the quality of the, the heart that listens that can attune to another. It's a spirit of non-harming. It's, a, it's this quality that wishes well for anybody and everybody that we know. And the world functions to some degree because of the presence of meta, just in the way that we hold doors open for each other, or we let people in line, or when we're driving. That simple quality of respecting each other is a manifestation of meta the way we take care of children or elderly parents or people who are sick, again, expressions of matter. It's instinctual in our nature to do that. There's a story I want to read. This is from um, a Buddhist teacher, Alan Wallace, who puts it this way. He gives a story analogy to, to point to the naturalness of this quality. He says, Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries, and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout out, You idiot! What's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice, and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you? Can I help you up? Our situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is blindness and ignorance, we can open the door of wisdom and compassion. So it's like that. It's very natural. It's very instinctual. Someone falls over and you reach out to help them up. You see someone crying and the hearts move to want to reach out. I was reading a wonderful book about India, about a man living in India. It's called Shantaram. Some of you may know it, a really moving book. Um, and he, he, for a period of time, he was on the run. He was a, an escaped convict. And he went into, uh, to live in one of Bombay's slums. That was about 20,000 people living in a, an area of about a square mile. And each of the families had a six foot square room in which everything was, that was their life their kitchen, their bedroom, their everything. And he often reflected, you know, if this was New York or San Francisco or London, 20,000 people living in a square mile, they would tear each other apart. But that didn't happen. There was a tremendous sense of love and generosity and, and caring and respect. And he said what held that, that city together was love that 20,000 people couldn't live in that cramped space unless it was pervaded with love and care. One of the things that I see that's most easy to connect with this quality of metta is when we're in nature, when we're touched by nature. And I know many of you are uh, talked about and are affected by the nature here. Just as you walk down the hill and you see the deer, and the young fawns, and their gentleness, and their trust, and their, their sensitivity, you know, the heart just blooms. I saw a yogi down the hill up on the lawn by the lower walking hole, and I could just tell she was just, just a very sweet tenderness from seeing that. We often have a, uh, several nesting um, swallows in the summer that come and uh, rear their young. And there's two nests outside the bathrooms, as you may have noticed, on the corner. And often you'll see the quivering baby swallows just sort of shivering and mouths wide open, eyes shut, waiting for mom to bring the food. And the heart just blooms. It it can't help but respond in that way. (coughs) Somebody was telling me today about that she takes a walk and one of these walks. And and Philip and I uh, took this walk the other day. There's this majestic, very beautiful old oak. Uh, I think it's a California oak. Huge, old, grandfather oak. And, um, and she talks about how she, how she weeps every time she sees this tree. And I feel the same way. It just It just opens the heart in that way. One of my favorite stories that came out of the tsunami, not that there was... You know there was a lot of incredible compassion and love that came out of that as well as terrible hardship and pain. There was a story that came out of Sri Lanka about a, um, uh, a baby hippo that got separated from its mother. that was washed way down uh, the shore, and it got picked up and taken to a sanctuary. Um, and it's a very vulnerable for a young hippo to be without its mother. And there was an old tortoise, a 100-year-old tortoise, and these tortoises grow to, you know, I don't know, six, eight, 10 feet uh, Pretty huge. And what happened is that the tortoise took the hippo under its wing. And so, they, so the hippo would follow the tortoise around, and whenever anybody would approach the tortoise, the young hippo would get very aggressive and defensive. And there's this beautiful picture of the young hippo who's smaller than this tortoise leaning up against the the, the the shell of the tortoise, and the tortoise looking very kindly at the hippo. <laughs> it's, it's very sweet. It's the heart of metta that you know, runs throughout this world. One of the things, going back to nature, uh, I spend a lot of time in nature, as you probably know, and I lead a lot of trips out there, is people are able to connect with a quality of um, uh, of uh, non-judgment. There's a way that when we leave the human world and go into the natural world where nature is completely itself, completely being itself in all of its idiosyncrasies and complexities and uniqueness. And there's a way that we often feel a sense of being trusted and not judged. And that's one of the great supports for matter is to let go of that quality that we so often carry of judging ourselves, of not thinking we're perfect enough. And that's something that I I notice when I'm on these wilderness retreats that I lead and I make a conscious effort to invite people to sense into the perfection that's there in the imperfection in nature and then bring that and look and turn that to other people that are on the retreat. Can we look at each other in that same way? Can we appreciate the idiosyncrasy and the imperfection? So, as many of you experienced and talked about in the interviews and in the groups, coming on retreat isn't a bunch of roses. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of pain, physical, mental, emotional. We also bring the pain of our lives. I remember the first three interviews that I had this retreat. Um, it was just people were telling me about the loss, pain of loved ones, loss of parents, loss of partners, relationships uh, dismantling. So we we carry a lot of pain from our lives. We experience a lot of pain in the present, and it's essential in this practice that we meet that pain, that suffering, with kindness, <coughs> with tenderness, with heartfulness. This practice becomes very painful if that's not the case, because as we become more aware, we begin to see ourselves more clearly, and often the stuff that we see isn't that pretty. Have you noticed? Sometimes it, you know, it's it's humbling. It can be embarrassing. It can be, oh God, do I really have to look at that? Oh, did I really do that and say that to that person? And requires a lot of forgiveness, as as, we, as Philip was uh, leading us in today. particularly when we're with our body, whether it's an asana practice or sitting practice, when we're, as particularly as we notice we're getting older and stiffer, to have compassion, to have kindness to the body. And the mindfulness supports that sensitivity and allows the heart to open. I took a long bike ride today, this afternoon, and... Um, uh, I, was, I left, i I've been right working on this talk, and I wanted some fresh air, so I took a bike ride, and uh, halfway through the bike ride, I was about 10 miles away, I completely crashed. My energy was like, oh my God, <laughs> 10 miles back to Spirit Rock, that feels very daunting. Um, and it required a lot of sensitivity, not to judge myself, not to push myself, but just to relax and eat some food and, and be gentle with myself, not beat myself up for being 10 miles away sometimes we we don't know what 's going to come up, so I want to read this um, uh, this piece that some of you know uh, it 's called the autobiography in five short Chapters, and I want to read it because um, As I said so much, when we're sitting in in our practice, we see our habits and our tendencies, and it can be very demoralizing um, and challenging and so easy for us to judge ourselves and get on our case. And so important to bring this quality of kindness. So the autobiography goes like this. It's by Portia Nelson. I walk down the street and there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I am lost, I am helpless. It isn't my fault and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street and there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open, I know where I am, it is my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down a different street. (laughs) So that's really one way of looking at this practice. We walk along, we fall into the same pitfalls of wandering mind, self-judgment, fear, And then the next day, the next moment, the next sitting, we're back there, beating ourselves up, or lost, or spaced out, or wandering. And important to hold that, not with judgment, but with, oh, yes, this is the human predicament. And then slowly we find a way out. But it's supported, our way out is partly through kindness. Chapter 6, which Portia didn't write about, is uh, we go back to the street and we fill the hole in. So, the good news about this quality of metta is that we can cultivate it, we can practice it. I remember growing up Catholic and um, would hear about the beautiful teachings of Jesus about love, practicing loving kind love and uh, love, loving one's neighbor and whatnot. But I ne- always had the question well, how do you do that? I don't like my neighbors, how do I love them? <laughs> and when I came to Buddhist practice, I, the first practice I learned actually was uh, loving-kindness practice. And I've been doing it for the last almost 20-some years. And when I first started practice, I was 19. I was an angry, young, bitter, punk rocker, squatting anarchist in London <laughs> who had a big chip on his shoulder and hated a lot of the world and what I saw. And also, had a, when I look back at my journals, had a lot of deep self-hatred and deep self-loathing and criticism. So the practice of metta, although it was hard for me, in the first year, it felt like I was thawing this big iceberg in my heart. It was very slow, and I often wonder what the point was, but for some reason I just kept at it, because the people around me said, just keep at it. It will will sow its seed. It will start to take fruit, bear fruit. And over time it did. It did start to soothe that angst, that pain, that deep sense of self-loathing, and self-judgment. And over the years, it's really transformed that quality of self-hatred into self-acceptance and appreciation. So it's possible. So in cultivating the practice of metta, as you know, as we will be doing in the evenings, we use these intentional phrases that express our deepest wish of kindness. May I be well, may I be safe, may I be happy. And what I love about the, the, the use of the phrases is we can use them anywhere. We can do what I call stealth meta, where you can just be sitting in the dining room and you can just slip somebody who looks pretty miserable, oh, may you be happy. Or you're driving and everyone's all tense and you're in traffic, and, and instead of resenting the fact that people are in front of you in traffic, you just go, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you get to where you want to go on time. And it transforms... The, mind. the Buddha said two mind states can't be in the mind at the same time. So if we're caught in anger, say, sitting in traffic, and we remember, oh, the practice of metta, may you be safe, may you be happy, it transforms that mental state in that moment. Metta is also a practice of remembering, just like mindfulness is a remembering practice. So it's remembering to have this intention, this orientation or an attitude of kindness towards ourselves and others. It's an intention to practice forgiveness for ourselves, for others. Practicing, as that bumper sticker says, random acts of kindness. One of my favorite things to do, we have a lot of bridges in the Bay Area and toll booths, is to pay for the person behind me. As an expression of metta. And sometimes what I hear is that then that person pays for the person behind them. And so it goes on. Or as I mentioned yesterday, we cultivate the prog, we reflect on the proximate cause of metta, reflect on our good qualities, our goodness, our wish to be happy. Or we reflect on the goodness of others. And that's such a radical way of looking at the world. We're so conditioned to look for faults and what's not right. And then if you start shifting that and sitting in the dining room and say so you're looking around instead of judging people and seeing how mindful unmindful everybody is, you start seeing their goodness. The fact that they're here, that they're wanting to be free, that they're wanting to wake up. One of my favorite stories of the power of how when we shift our orientation, uh, our perspective, on, uh, it really transforms our world or the way we see it there's a story of um, an old city, uh, I think it's in the desert, I don't fully know the details of the story, remember the details of the story, but anyhow, there's an there's old city with a, a, a wall around it, and there's only one entrance to the city, and there's a gatekeeper, and he always questions the people uh, when they arrive, and so one family comes in, and the new family asks the gatekeeper, so what are people like in this city? and the gatekeeper says, well, how are the people in, your, in the, the place you just came from? And the, and the, and the family says, well, you know, they're pretty grumpy and miserable and quite mean and angry and aggressive and that's why we left and now we're here. And he said, well, that's probably how you'll find the people here. And then the next family comes up and they say, oh, what, what are the people like here? He says, well, how was the people in your old town? And they said, oh, they were lovely. They were warm and generous and kind and caring and considerate. He said, oh, you'll probably find the people in this town that way too. So how we look at the world has a profound effect on, how, on our experience of the world. This is also a very essential quality to bring into our asana practice. I started doing uh, yoga the same time I started meditating. when I was about 19, 20. And I was doing Iyengar practice, and I was... Um, did it in a very, um, I sort of brought all that anger and charge and, into my asana practice and w- wasn't very sensitive and wasn't very kind on of my body and injured myself several times because I pushed, I didn't respect the limits of my body. Um, and over time, I've come to learn the importance of that and how the asana practice is a reflection of my relationship to the body. And fortunately, um, I had a teacher uh, in my early 20s Uh, sort of my first main yoga teacher, who was also a long-term meditation practitioner, um, who really embodied this quality of metta and and kindness and really taught me how to relate to the body in asana practice with this spirit of kindness and care and acceptance. And it really transformed my practice. I have a lot of, of appreciation for what he embodied So as we've mentioned in the the meta-practice in the evening, this quality of loving-kindness begins at home, like so many of the practices, begins with ourselves. The Buddha said, The whole world we travel with our thoughts, finding nowhere anyone as precious as one's own dear self. The whole world we travel with our thoughts, finding nowhere anyone as precious as one's own self. That's quite a statement. This is from Derek Walcott putting it in a more contemporary idiom, which really is talking about what happens when we begin to touch into and inhabit this quality of metta that's flowered in ourselves towards ourselves. It says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here and eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all of your life, whom you have ignored for another, and who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, and the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. Oscar Wilde, putting it another way, he said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. And it's a very reliable love affair. (laughs) 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 It's very dependable. (laughs) My teacher, Punjaji, when people would ask him about marriage, he would say, marry the one that never leaves you. And he wasn't talking about somebody outside of ourselves. You know, one of the blessings of being a teacher, as you may have seen from your own teaching work, is I have get to see how people transform themselves through practice. And I've gotten to see how people have transformed themselves through metta. Through profound self acceptance, self regard. This is a poem from uh, one student um, who had a very, very traumatic childhood, probably the most traumatic childhood I've ever heard, the stories that I've heard, very incredibly painful. And she did metta practice for a long time and came to heal many of the wounds uh, from that, from the scarring called Drink Metta. She says, drink, drink until you are swollen with the nectar of self nurturing, beauty and love. Fill yourself with amazement and marvel at the wonder of who you are. Drink, drink the juice of Metta, for you and for no one else, for your own beauty and love. Drink until you are so full, it spills from you freely. And gracefully. Drink until you are the nectar, the juice itself, and then you will be love. So I love that. I love that idea of the, 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 the filling of the cup inside, and then it begins to spill. It begins to overflow. It's unstoppable. It's not something we can hold on to. It doesn't have that, that nature. So if meta is such a great thing, how come we don't just bathe in it all day? <laughs> how come we're not just feasting and celebrating in this quality of love? It's a good question, right? What is it that locks the heart, that, that hinders this flow, this nectar from overflowing? our relationship to ourself is one of the key obstacles. The way that we've shut down to ourselves the self-judgment, the self-hatred, the self-neglect, the lack of self-worth, the lack of self-respect. And what I notice with most people that I work with, the the presence of the critic and the self-judgment is probably the thing that most undermines the positive self-regard. And the believing of the, of the statements of the judge, that we're not good enough, that our practice isn't good enough, that our body is not good enough, that our meditation is not good enough, that we'll never be good enough. Very powerful stories that we believe, can believe. And when we stop believing them, when we see that they're just thoughts, can really free some of the shackles around the heart. So this is one way that we, can, we do this. Um, this is a kind of amusing look at it, and it's sometimes good to have a sense of humor about the way that we torture ourselves. It's called The Checklist to Feeling Pathetic. <laughs> and there's a comic strip and there's a woman reflecting Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Ever do that on retreat? When you're walking or sitting? Oh, they all look like Buddhas, and I'm just the only one who has no idea what's going on. And then she's looking in the mirror. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. We live embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. (laughs) I know you've been doing that. I hear about it. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all the compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. So she's, somebody's giving a compliment. You look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. And finally, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. So we, we all have these peculiar, somewhat amusing, but very painful habits. Really good. That's why mindfulness is such a support to the meta-practice, because it helps us see it. There's that bumper sticker that goes around that says, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> this is Stephen, or somebody who's... Um, um, forget that thought. Um, different, <laughs> different retreat. <laughs> um, So we could do with applying that to our judge. Don't believe everything that you think. There's uh, there's many wonderful stories of the power of metta, both from the tradition and also uh, from contemporary teachers and practitioners. One of my favourite, most inspiring. Uh, sort of expressions of Metta was uh, Maha Goshananda, who died recently a wonderful uh, Cambodian elder who when during the genocide in Cambodia was practicing um, at, in a monastery in southern Thailand and then when the genocide was over he found that uh, all 17 of his living relatives had been killed and so once, the, um, once, once it was safe to go back, he first would go to the um, refugee camps uh, on the borders, the Thai border primarily, um, where the Khmer Rouge was still uh, in, in, in operation. And he began giving Dharma talks and chanting um, The Dharma was suppressed and anybody who was known to have association with Buddhism was basically killed. Of all the six hundred thousand monks, uh, there were only three thousand left at the end of the genocide. So he began uh, doing peace walks through the war-torn country, where there were landmines littering the, the ground everywhere. Um, meeting orphans of uh, the war and parents uh, grieving the loss of parents grieving the loss of their children. And whenever he went anywhere, he would. Um, In great assembly, people would gather because it was such a blessing for them to be able to hear the Dharma again safely. And he would mainly chant this one chant that's uh, one of the most famous of the Buddhist teachings, the teaching where the Buddha said, Hatred never ceases with hatred. Only by love does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. And he would start chanting this And then very slowly people would start chanting. It's a very familiar old chant. Um, And he just restored such a lot of confidence and faith uh, in his people to practice and to find that and to teach that that the heart has the power to forgive, to let go, to move on. And he came to Spirit Rock, not that long ago for a teacher meeting um, when he was quite old and uh, having some effect of dementia. But because of the power of his uh, metapractice, even though there were times when he didn't know where he was going because he was a little confused and would be found wandering here and there, oh. the, his body was just filled with love and smiles and kindness and just, radi- just radiated kindness. So this quality of metta has this very profound potential to affect ourselves, affect each other, to help us understand that ultimately we're not separate, to dissolve the sense of um, disconnect that we have from each other. This is a quote from Eckhart Tolle. He says, In the stillness of your presence... You can feel your own formless and timeless reality as the unmanifested life that animates your physical form. You can then feel the same life deep within every other human and creature. You look beyond the veil of form and separation. This is the realization of oneness. This is love. It's really where these two practices come together. And out of this quality of metta, when metta meets pain, suffering, distress, anguish. What arises is the quality of compassion. What the Buddha calls a quivering of the heart in response to meeting suffering. It's a resonance. It's the feeling of the suffering of another. We feel compassion. We feel the suffering of another. This is a story that describes this, of, of really describes the power of compassion and the resilience of the human heart, how really these qualities are innate to our nature, no matter how suppressed they've become or been, that they always have the power to reassert themselves because it's our Buddha nature, it's our true nature. This is a story uh, by D.S. Bennett, writing about the power of compassion. She said, Mother always assured me that unspeakable punishments were bound to befall any naughty child as naughty as I was. If I were you, she'd say, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night, for fear God would strike me dead. She would speak these words softly and regretfully, as though saddened by her errant daughter's fate. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. <laughs> However, she answered, How could anyone ever love you? How could anyone ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from her, all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese which I would carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would would feed me little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, There, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. That's the power of compassion. Notice what you're feeling in your heart. When the heart meets pain, it moves, it quivers, we feel it. We feel the suffering of that young girl, that beautiful, exquisite tenderness. That's the heart of compassion. We can feel that quality towards our own pain when the heart's open. We can feel it when we hear someone crying in the hall, or we just see someone who looks distressed, or we hear about a good friend or a family member who's suddenly been taken sick or has some terminal diagnosis. We can also feel it in response to the pain in the world. Tremendous suffering in the world. This is from the poet Ryokan who was a Buddhist poet and hermit who lived up in the mountains, somewhat of a recluse. And yet, through the power of his practice, you can tell by his poetry, there's a deep, resonant connection to life and the feeling of life. He says, when I think about the misery of those in this world, their sadness becomes mine. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Nothing makes me more happy than the Buddha's, Buddha Amida's vow to save everyone. So compassion feels for the tenderness of life, for the fragility of life, that we're all susceptible to pain, to being hurt. St. John of the Cross He says, tenderly, I now touch all things. Tenderly, I now touch all things, knowing that one day we will depart. So again, the the fusion of mindfulness and compassion, mindfulness has the power to illuminate what's true, to help us see what is in the moment. And a really important part of practice is to see, to really acknowledge when we're suffering. Something that we often overlook. We might feel our knee pain. We might feel our sorrow. We might feel our loneliness or fear or how painful our judgment, feel the, the, the tyranny of the judge about beating up on our practice it's really important to recognize, oh, that's suffering. That loneliness is suffering, that anxiety is suffering, that fear is suffering, that emptiness is suffering, that judging mind is suffering. Because when we acknowledge suffering, it allows the heart to open in response with compassion. It's a very important point that when we acknowledge, oh yes, this is suffering, this is the first noble truth, this is what the Buddha talked about, life can be unsatisfactory. That is suffering. Oh, yeah. And then it allows a tenderness to to meet that. And as teachers, it's essential we learn to develop this quality first in ourselves because in my experience, to the extent that I can't open to my own pain, that when people come to me with their own pain. If I haven't resolved that in myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have some aversion to it. The extent that we can fully open to our pain, we can learn how to work with the pain of our students. And this practice, as we move into the world, asks us, you know, And it's, it's a very um, high uh, order to ask us to keep our hearts open in a world that's strewn with suffering. You, know, you can't turn on the radio or open a newspaper without coming across a lot of suffering. So it requires a certain amount of courage and steadiness. Just hearing about the latest uh, suppression of the resistance movement in Burma it's been very painful to me and to all of us who have a love of this tradition. All the floods that, that pummeled in northern India and in Bihar, the, in Bodhgaya, uh, the heart of uh, Bihar, where thousands of people would, would died and millions of people displaced. Tremendous suffering. Trungpa Rinpoche wrote about this quality of the heart. He says, When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. And if you search for the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This experience of compassion is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. And what allows the heart to stay open is also the quality of equanimity, which I don't really have time to go into, but it really comes out of our mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice is learning how to meet what's true, not resist, not complain, not think it should be different, not saying it's unfair, just meeting the truth. That, that steadfastness of equanimity allows us to keep the heart open and not be overwhelmed by the suffering. And lastly, I could say a lot more about compassion. We'll we'll go more into that in the next retreat. That out of this compassionate heart, compassion really is a verb. It's a movement. It's not just a feeling, but it expresses itself in a wish to relieve the suffering. And the highest expression of that is what's called bodhicitta. This quality it's innate to a Bodhisattva, one who wishes to relieve the suffering of all of life. It's one of the highest, most beautiful, sublime qualities in the Buddhist teaching. And just as an aside, um, uh, not that um, I'm equating uh, Al Gore as a Bodhisattva, but I, I do appreciate his decades of work around climate change and around global warming. And he was given, a couple of days ago, the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. He, he and the, the Center for Climate Control, or, or, or the, the, non-govern, the inter, non-governmental organization uh, that he's been working with, uh, which I think is a wonderful honoring. But that's an example of someone who really has committed themselves to Path of Truth and also to... Um, relieving the suffering, the untold amount of suffering that will come from global warming. So, it's, so this quality of um, compassion, as I said, it's active, it's dynamic. It's, it's really this, the heart of the Buddha's teaching in that when the Buddha awoke, it was compassion that, that propelled him to begin his teaching. He saw how humans create our own suffering and he also found a way out. And he wasn't just going to keep that to himself. He, he, out of the compassion of his heart, he wanted to share that wisdom, that teaching. When he would gathered many enlightened disciples, another expression of this compassionate heart, this quality bodhicitta, he said, my friends, I am free of all the human and divine entanglements. And so you likewise are free of all human and divine entanglements. Go forth into the world for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, with compassion for the world, and for the benefit, the blessing, and the happiness of humans and gods. So he, wanted, so he was really like, he was propelling this movement of compassion out into the world. These teachings liberate. Go help people discover that for themselves. It's, I find it a very beautiful, inspiring momentum that was generated 2,600 years ago, and we're still living the fruit of that compassion. So this expression of the heart can be global, like in the Buddha's expression, but it can also be very small, very simple. Someone in front of us is suffering, our best friend, we call them. We comfort them, we hold them. Mother Teresa said, we can't do any great things We can only do small things with great love. She just picked up one person at a time from the streets of Calcutta and then another person. And then look what happened, this beautiful organization around the world. So I think I'll leave you with one more piece, and then I'll close so I'll read a part of a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye who speaks to speaks beautifully to this idea of uh, first opening to the suffering as a way to releasing the force of compassion and kindness. This is from the poem, Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So let's just sit for a moment. beings know the fullness of loving kindness. May all beings awaken compassion. for your attention. We have about 20 minutes for walking and then we'll come back and we'll do some metta and chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.